Hey friends, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring how ordinary people can work together to change their societies for the better. And on today's show, we are talking with Rachel Cargill. Rachel is an activist, a writer, a lecturer. Her activist and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse tools and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. She's a regular contributor at Harper's Bazaar, and you've probably seen her on Jada Pinkett Smith's show, Red Table Talk. I was so excited to talk to Rachel because she has such a strong point of view and she's just such a brilliant thinker that I feel like anyone who's serious about doing this work around anti-racism and social change has to be listening to her. So without further ado, we talk with Rachel about her work and about her perspective on racial justice work in a kind of broad sense. Here is our conversation with Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi. (laughs) I'm so, so honored and glad to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with you. Okay, so let's just jump into it. I saw the other day, because I follow you on Instagram, like I'm sure many that are listening do, and I saw you post something about how people kind of, they get it messed up. Like they think that you are just a social media person, personality, and that that your actual work is not being on social media. And so I just thought that'd be a good place to start. Like what is your, what is your actual work? Yeah, well, I think that my actual work is as an academic, as a writer, as a lecturer. And Mm -hmm. I always say, like I said on that post, that social media is a tool of my work, but it's not my actual work. And I think that's probably true for many people who are kind of doing work in this space and using social media as a space to create community and conversation. But we know specifically in this world of doing activism, race work, that the actual work happens offline, you know, on our everyday Mm. platforms. We often associate the word platform with how many followers we have, but really our platform is our kitchen table, our campuses, Mm. our churches, our communities. Mm. And so I hope it's for everyone that their work isn't social media, that social media continues to be a powerful tool of our generation, but we are continuing to be hyper aware of the fact that all of our work is actually offline and in the way that Mm. we exist in the world. And so I take a lot of pride in my work as a, um, as an academic who does critical writing and um, who's out here doing public lecturing, which I take very seriously. Mm-hmm. And it's the favorite, it's my favorite part of the work that I do. And so, um, yeah, social media is a tool, but it's not the actual work that's getting done. Yeah. Yeah. And you are you working on a PhD right now? No, everyone thinks that it's really funny. I'm actually an undergrad. <laughs> I do not have a degree. <laughs> 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 no, you know, I don't know why. I, th- I don't know why I thought that. You know, it's funny is that people all- often do that to me as well. They're like, Andre, I heard that you have several PhDs, and I'm like, I don't have one PhD. <laughs> the most common question I get, and it's really funny because people get so shocked, and I'm often like nervous about what the reaction will be because there have been times like I've been invited by grad students at Harvard to come and lecture to their groups, and they'll be like, "This is Rachel. She has a PhD," and I'm like, "Oh no, no, I don't." Do y'all want to send me back home because I'm not who you think I am. So um, no, I don't have a degree. I'm working on my undergrad. You know, I think there's an interesting conversation in there too, though, about academia and even those expectations, right? Mm -hmm. That people who are doing this work 
have high level degrees and that you need need that to do that. And I think one question sometimes that, you know, comes up is what qualifies people to be able to do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I think that there is a critical conversation that needs to be had, particularly about decolonizing authority. Mm. Um, and it's something that my friend Ebony Janice talks about a lot. And it's looking into the ways that we are defined by the processes and the boundaries that were set in a very colonized space. So academia, mm-hmm. you know, has its deep, deep issues surrounding racism, surrounding colonization. And I think that there's yeah. something that we need to consider about decolonizing intellect, decolonizing academia and the authority, the white gaze that we think we need approval from in order to feel uh, official and especially right. in race work. You know, yeah. people always ask, oh, Rachel, when did you start this work? I'm like, when I was born as a black woman. Um, <laughs> like, when did you become an expert when I was born as a black person? That's when I became an expert. Right. And so right. I think that um, we need to kind of get hold of this intellectual genius that we have purely from existing as black people speaking on the things Mm -hmm. that affect us personally. But also we are out here reading. We are out here researching when we're out here talking to, we're out here sitting on the stoop, talking to our friends. We're doing some ethnographic work. (laughs) We, you know, like we are doing this and we have authority to speak on it and we need to do so. Right. You know, it reminds me of, you know, you're you're having these conversations and sometimes when you're having them online, they're open. There are no boundaries, right? There are no gates mm-hmm. keeping people out. And so people wander in and, you know, they may start arguing some point that's like 101, right? If you had the lived experience as a black person, you wouldn't be saying or asking that question. Mm-hmm. And I think they I think that people really do discount the value of lived experience as a source of knowledge. So how do you feel like acad- academia or you know some type of institutional learning adds to the lived experience you know in pe- in for people who are doing this kind of work well one thing that i really value about academia is learning how to um, critically an- analyze the things that we do know so mm. that's that's not always something that comes natural to people to be able to critically analyze uh, all the information that we hold in us. And so that's one thing I really value, you know, how to be a better writer, how to really put onto the paper um, mm-hmm. the things that we know, how to analyze data that we understand. You know, if you see how many mm-hmm. houses are being you know, their residents are being pushed out and what that looks like in comparison to the economy and, you know, like kind of putting together pieces that we might not always Mm. know how to do it, but we do have the information and how to kind of be um, a little more critical in analyzing what we know so that we can uh, move that to action. I think, I think that's Mm. definitely something that the Academy provides. Yeah. Now I feel like sometimes going through the academy can be an alienating experience for students and scholars right and you can you can lose touch with people who are the most deeply impacted and on the front lines of fighting these uh, fighting for these social causes and so i wonder what do you, what do you think the role is of intellectuals and academics in liberation work uh to see each other I think to be able to say, like, I see you, I hear you, and to affirm our shared experiences. And I think that that is kind of the thing that gives us the extra energy to keep moving and to keep fighting. And I think that there's so... 
there's so much that needs to be appreciated about the ways that we're all doing the work. And I think that some mm-hmm. people, you know, they're like, you know, the academy is doing this, so I'm leaving and this is how I'm going to fight it. And some people say the academy is doing this, so I'm staying and this is how I'm going to fight it. And both mm-hmm. both of those hold deep value in how to approach the issues. And so I think that acknowledging that we're all in this and that it's really shitty and hard for so many and really just validating how we're all doing the fight and sharing our resources, sharing our knowledge, sharing our tools so that we all feel Mm. seen and heard and affirmed. um, And that we're all just building this toolkit of how we're continuing, continuing to fight it in whichever way we decide is the best for us. Mm. And one way that I see you fighting is by being very clear and, and forceful in the way that you speak about issues of justice. And I really appreciate the the boldness that you speak with. And I wonder about your tone, right? And who you're talking to and how you came to the decision that, you know, you're going to speak clearly and forcefully. I think that's all I know. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it was the decision, like this is how to be, but I think that, I think that, the clarity has been shown to be appreciated from my audience, Um, kind of that straightforwardness. And I think it's kind of like, I'm kind of saying, I'm giving it to you raw and you can choose what you're going to do with it. And so Mm. um, I, I, I think maybe I appreciate being taught in that way. And so I'm just emulating what um, I know works really well for me. But I made a post recently um, by someone else that, that spoke about how part of that, underlying fierceness and anger and passion and emotion mm. that's part of the teaching mm-hmm. you know this mm-hmm. the race not, no race work is going to be sweet and easy because there's so much mm-hmm. that comes with it so much pain and so much hurt and even in the joy usually the joy that we're talking about came out of a pain and you know we're celebrating the beauty of the fact that we were even able to do that and so um i will mm-hmm. never apologize for attributing the correct emotions to the realities of right. how we've experienced it and i i I happen to do very white facing work. So I have a very large white audience. And so I have to, Mm -hmm. um, I've realized that part of my work isn't just teaching, but also Mm. teaching my audience how to receive what I'm teaching. And so, um, Mm. I, I understand that when I'm being fairly aggressive, that, that's not always an opportunity for the black girl in a business office. She can't necessarily talk to her white boss like that based on what the consequences may Mm. be. And so um, I take that very seriously, being able to do that and teach my white audience, you know, this, what I'm saying is valid, whether it feels good to you or not. And I often talk about the fact that if you only listen to me, And I say, you know, I'm an Ivy League educated, very well written, very well spoken, pretty cute black girl who if you listen to me, Mm -hmm. but you don't listen to your black neighbor or you don't listen to your black coworker, you think I'm your entertainment Mm -hmm. and I'm not. You need to be listening to every black person and their experience and what they're trying to tell you. Right. Right. So important. I assume that you probably get criticism from a lot of different groups. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm sure that they're. 
white people, people of color, black people. Oh my gosh, is that people true? write like dissertation emails to me about how they feel. And I'm like, I don't write <laughs> and I always I don't write this many words without getting paid. I have no clue why y'all are emailing me. <laughs> 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 like it's wild. It's wild. Yes, I do I do get a lot of DMs, a lot of emails, a lot of I've had articles written about me. Um Oh it's my wild. God. People don't have nothing else to do. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so, okay. How do you, how do you keep yourself okay with facing that kind of backlash? Cause it sounds like there's a lot and it sounds like it's often. So what do you do so that, you know, you don't sweat all of that? Well, there's two parts to it. One is that this is my work and how I try to describe it. Cause I get this question almost daily. And the thing is, it's like, for me to go to a kindergarten teacher and be like, how do you deal with four-year-olds all day? Like I personally would never want to do that. And it's like, how do you deal with them yelling and screaming and crying? And the, of course the kindergartner would teacher would be like, Oh, it's my work. This is what I, you know, this is what I studied and this is what I love. And so for me, it's the same way. This is my work. This is what I love. So even the hard parts are part of this work that I do. And it's part of uh, my passion. So I take it as um, it, it probably doesn't weigh as heavy on me as it would someone else. Just like, you know, being, mm. kinder- being in a room full of kindergartners all day would weigh really heavy on me, but it doesn't so much on an actual kindergarten teacher. Um, so that's part of it, that this is just my work. And so existing in this space probably isn't as heavy on me as it is mm. someone who isn't supposed to be uh, doing this work. And the other thing is I do a lot yeah. of self-care. I really, um, I'm really intentional with being introspective and aware of my needs and my wants and how I exist in the world. So um, just being really mm-hmm. intentional with that as well. One thing that comes up a lot is when we talk about liberation, freedom, anti-racism, mm-hmm. whatever word we want to use, is about, I think sometimes people of color and white people get worried that by focusing on Black people, like it's exclusive, right? And I wondered if in... In your studies, if you see, well, I also hear the counter argument that the things that we do for the most impacted benefit everyone. And I wondered if you could comment on that. I feel that way. When you say it's the most exclusive, hell yeah, it's exclusive. (laughs) And I'm not apologizing for it. Um, there needs to be that ex- there, we deserve that exclusivity first of all but also as you said when the least of us are free all of us are and that there's incredible value to the whole of society when there's an understanding of black women and their existence the black community and their existence um, holding the white community accountable for how how we exist in this time and space and so um, I will never ever ever apologize for the exclusivity of my work Mm, mm. Yeah. And it sounds like it sounds like also, yeah, sure, like it is exclusive in focusing on this group. But the thing, the reforms that need to happen in society to make the most impacted free are beneficial to everyone. Exactly. But also consider that anything that's there's someone there's some archaeologist out there studying like dinosaur genitalia. If he can be specific in the work that he's doing, I can be specific in the work that I'm doing. <laughs> very true. Very true. OK, so while we're on this, I, I really want to bring up a couple of things. And these OK, I, someone's going to be mad at me for this. but <laughs> Is it me? Am I going to be the one who's mad? I hope not. <laughs> No, 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 no. Well, okay. 
I noticed something after 2016 as well. And I feel like a lot of white women had kind of an awakening of sorts in 2016 as well because of the election. And Rachel, let me just be honest. I'm going to just keep it 100 with you, okay? (laughs) I don't like the way that a lot of white women are using the word intersectionality and using the term intersectionality. Oh, for sure. Um, I'll tell you a a real quick story because I really really want want, want to hear you comment on this. Yes. Um, (laughs) Tell me. So I wrote an article in February um, Mm -hmm. because I have, you know, I grew up in the South in a white evangelical context. And around 2016 is when a lot of those relationships changed probably forever. So I wrote an article Mm -hmm. on February, in February, because those same people were going around the internet saying, Andre hates white people. So I said, okay, well, listen, first off. Oh my gosh, people say that to me all the time. It's so funny. uh, uh, First off, if you're going to (laughs) say I hate white people, you better have a receipt. That's what I'm saying. You better, you better be able to- I have white friends. They're like, what? No one believes that I have a white friend. So funny. So I wrote basically a receipt of like, Mm -hmm. this is how I actually feel about white people, which I have a very deep love for Mm -hmm. even the people that I had to cut off. But I did have to set a boundary, right? So so, um, I mentioned in the article that I knew that these people would have believed their children if their children told them, you know, that mm-hmm, they had been mm-hmm. harmed or they'd been assaulted or something like that. Now, I was saying that about people that I know. And so I got a lot, I got a few white women that were saying, well, we need to talk about intersectionality because this guy, blah, blah, blah. And I go, you know what? I will, I will only take black women calling me out on intersectionality. Yes. <laughs> but I, I am not okay with this from white women who are not also considering how race influences com- yes. the very conversation they were ha- yes. trying to have, you know, like, Emmett Till, Emmett Till was accused of raping or, or touching a white woman. And there was no, you know, well, let's, right. let's wait for all the facts. You know, he did not live. So anyway, that's where it comes from. <laughs> I took a long time to tell that story. I'm sorry. But all that to say, I'm not okay with the way a lot of white women are talking about intersectionality. Yeah, well, <laughs> And I wondered if you're noticing this too and what, what you had to say about it. 110%. And I teach on intersectionality in my lecture, Unpacking White Feminism. And the first thing I say when I even bring up the topic, I'm like, I know, because my, my lectures are usually full of white women. And I say, I know you mm. all probably have like intersectional feminists in your bio, but you're probably not. So first of all, <laughs> before you even... What's it's such a black term before you even try to form the word intersectional in your mouth? Didn't your mom used to say that? <laughs> like, don't even try to form something mm-hmm. in your mouth before you say it. Before you even try to form the word intersectional in your mouth, you need to be saying Kimberly Crenshaw. Like, there's no reason. Like, I, right. I need you to verbally cite her, like, every time until it's a well known fact that she is the one who developed this theory. So the first is recognizing that it's a black woman who created this based on her recognition that black women were being erased in the justice system. Point blank. Intersectionality was created for black women. It has been used in other spaces, and that's to to have an understanding of intersecting oppressions. But I think it needs to be known that it was developed for the needs of black women. First of all, mm. second of all, mm-hmm. intersectionality is not a word. It's not just a word we say um, right. to describe something. Intersectionality is a theory. Kimberly Crenshaw created an entire theory around this. So until mm-hmm. you've studied the work of her, there's she's done TED Talks, she's written articles, she has books. 
until you really have an understanding of the word, you don't know it enough to be using it. And so I think Mm -hmm. just along the lines of diversity, um, the word intersectionality, they, they think that intersectionality and diversity is interchangeable and it's not. And also mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's kind of like a, a veil to put over you to make you think that you're not racist. <laughs> and so, but, but it doesn't phase me personally and clearly it doesn't phase you either. And so mm-hmm. I, ref, so when someone tries to argue with me about intersectionality, I say, okay, can we talk about the theory a bit? And then it's over until we can sit and talk Ooh. about theory. I don't want to hear you talk about intersectionality. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. I'm like, I'm like wired right now. I could bounce <laughs> off a wall. <laughs> I, there was a moment in uh, one of the red table talks that you were in where I was like, if I ever get to talk to Rachel Cargo, I'm going to ask her about this moment. Um, <laughs> I'm ready. Because as we're talking, as we're talking about, you know, cross-racial dialogue, um, I think it was, it was Jada who said, who talked about recognizing allies. You know, mm-hmm. I think that she was uh, talking about collective liberation and whatnot. And I couldn't tell, but it seemed like you got real quiet. <laughs> like you were, you were making a point right there <laughs> about how some some non-Black people want to be allies. And um, I think the point that was being made was that maybe sometimes we're not very trusting toward them and sometimes we're not recognizing them. And I wondered what your thoughts are on about collective liberation and on non-Black people trying to collaborate with Black people in anti-racist work. Well, there's a few things to talk about here. And one of the easiest ways I've found to um, kind of center this conversation is if we imagine that a man was leading a movement for anti patriarchy or Mm anti-misogyny. So if we saw Mm -hmm. a man leading a movement against misogyny, we would be happy for it, but we know that he wouldn't Mm -hmm. be able to speak directly to the real issues of it. And he'd need to move over and let a woman describe what was happening and what needed to be done to fix it because the perpetrator can't also be the fixer. And so while you can support the marginalized group you're supporting, you can't lead them. You will never. That was so black. You will never. So So I've been having a conversation. Actually, I just did an interview today talking about Robin D'Angelo and her book, White Fragility, and how it's on the bestseller list and how she's going out and doing all this anti-racism work. And and I've read her book. Her book's brilliant. I love it. It has a lot of really critical information, but unless she's giving 50% of the money she's making from that book to black communities, there's a conversation to be mm. had because mm. I, I don't like the idea of a white person profiting off of race work. Not only do you benefit from the system you're going against, but you're also benefiting from trying to break it down. I, mm. there's conversation mm-hmm. to be had about that. I think. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I have, I have a a couple of friends who are also scholars that, that not that this is a scholarly conversation, everybody who's (laughs) listening, like, (laughs) but, um, that, that are from kind of the Afro pessimist, um, tradition. And so they're very, they're very skeptical about 
the ability of black and non-black people to work together without non-black people confronting their anti-blackness. Yeah. Yeah, And I, and it is, I think that's a valid conversation to be had. And I think that there's nothing wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with allyship. I, I believe that there are white people who are looking to do this work, but I also think that there is some critical analysis and conversation that has to be had about what their role is and and I think that their role should always be paying their privilege forward to the marginalized leaders. Mm. And it it's just very concerning. It doesn't sit well with me to consider that she's making however much money she's making on her speaking rounds for a book about race. Mm. If the benefits of that are, if the benefits of your race work are still benefiting white people. Mm. I don't know. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know yeah. how to. I, this is something that I've just started really thinking about. So I don't know my my fullest thoughts. But going back to the red table talk and Jada, Jada and I argued a lot on and off, <laughs> <laughs> on and off camera. And I think that she clearly doesn't align with my straightforward way of a, of approaching this conversation. And. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that the receipts showed from that episode, I don't know if you remember seeing me post, but after that episode, then after Googling um, like the Red Table Talk with Rachel Cargo, I was interested to see like what the media was talking about. Every single article mm-hmm. talked about Jada saying white people can be allies and how um, Anne Hathaway was a good example of white allyship. The media took nothing else from that Red Table Talk except praising the white person in the conversation. And that's why, Mm -hmm. that's why we need to be intentional on how we have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So important. So I want to ask you, what do you think, what does black liberation look like to you? Like if, if we were all successful in all this work that we're doing on, in different fronts and different fields, what do you, what do you think the world would look like? You know, it's been a conversation that my friend Ebony Janice has been talking about and it, what does it look like for black people to just exist and not be continuously resisting? And what does that, what would that mean for our bodies? What would that mean for our minds? What would that mean for our creativity? I was just thinking, I went to a film festival in Brooklyn um, last year. It was a short film festival for, for black directors and every, let me think, there were probably about seven films that we saw. Five of them were about police brutality. And it's like, So much of our creativity is wrapped up in defending our, improving our existence, in defending our existence. And it's like, can you imagine if police brutality wasn't a thing? What would that creativity and that money have gone to? What would that film have looked like if we weren't, if their hearts weren't heavy with police brutality? And so I think Mm -hmm. that I I, I want us to just exist and not resist. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Deep Negro spiritual side. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, do, what do you think black, the role of black people should be in pursuing that? You know, like I know that we talk about like, it's not our responsibility to try to, to try to convince white people to defect from white supremacy, even though some of us do, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's, that's meaningful work. But what is, what do you think our role is? To stay alive, to be happy yeah. as often as possible, to be full as often as possible to um, 
be as alive as possible as often as possible because I deeply believe that joy and exist our joy is a resistance. Um, mm-hmm. I deeply believe that, like I said, just staying alive is a resistance. Black love is a resistance. Um, black intellect is a resistance. And so while some of us, this is our work, know that we're doing that nuanced critical work. But for those, mm-hmm. you know, I get a lot of questions from black people like, Rachel, how do I do this work? And I say, unless you feel ex- deeply called to do anti-racism work, your only job is to stay alive. Like stay mm. alive, stay free, stay happy, do everything you can to maintain that. And all of us who are on the front lines of, the, of this anti-racism work will continue to, you know, um, listen to our calling and fulfill our calling. But for everyone who that's not their particular work, then just exist the way you exist because your anti-racism work looks like you creating a bomb ass film. Your anti-racism looks like mm-hmm. how you dance on that stage. Your anti-racism look, work looks like how you teach in the classroom. So um, mm-hmm. I don't... I I don't put any, any, I don't put any tasks to black people, um, except Mm -hmm. to just continue to be alive and be well. Mm. I want to ask you one last question. I ask everyone that I have on the show, the same question. I'm assuming that the fact that you continue to get up in the morning and continue to teach and continue to educate means that you believe that it can make a difference. And I wonder what keeps you going. Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, what keeps me going is knowing that this is my purpose and knowing that I continue to get the messages from black women who say, you've made me feel seen. You've made me feel heard. You've given me language to combat the things that I'm experiencing in various spaces. Um, knowing that me existing in my power and in my purpose is, um, assisting other black women in doing the same, that's enough for me. Mm. And also recognizing that, you know, if we can, this work has been done over and over again. I, I always share the story about, I was in Brooklyn walking down the sidewalk and this woman was selling books and I picked up a book called 19th century black women in America. And it was Mm. a collection Mm -hmm. of lectures done by black women on anti-racism work from the 19th century. And so considering, considering that, you know, and and so from that, from reading that and studying that and listening to these women, it made me think like, oh, oh, okay. It's just my turn. And so recognizing Mm -hmm. that it's my turn. And so I'm going to, to do it fully. I don't necessarily have any huge hope that anything's going to change in my generation or maybe even the next generation. It could, it might not, but I have to, I have Mm -hmm. to take my turn. Wow. That's powerful. Rachel, thank you so much. This has been such an amazing conversation. I am so happy that we got to have it. And where can people, where should people go to follow your work and to keep, uh, keep, Instagram is my space. Um, at Rachel.cargill is my page. And that's where I, um, I do a lot of teaching. I share whenever I'm out lecturing, um, a lot of the information that I'm putting out, whether it be, you know, my Harper's Bazaar articles or a live lecture that I'm doing, everything is there. And also a lot of really good conversation within the post as well. So Awesome. All right. Well, make sure that you follow Rachel on Instagram. We will see y'all. Well, we won't see you because this is an audio <laughs> podcast, but you'll hear you'll hear from me later. <laughs> <laughs>